What is CBP Connects like? Well, it's kind of like going on the coolest beer trip ever, just with 250 of your closest friends. Visit an amazing beer city, network, and connect with other professionals, gain a new understanding of industry topics, and more at CBP Connects in Charleston, South Carolina, this December 4th through 6th. Discover more and register at cbpconnects.com. CBP Connects, for when you want to bond, learn, and grow all in the same place. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Market My Brewery's virtual panel on standardizing beer information, a deep dive into best practices for sharing your brand's information. I want to give a minute or two for folks to join. So while we do that, I wanted to start by saying thank you to Craft Beer Professionals and a huge shout out to Andrew and the team over there uh, for giving us a space to come together and share some great insights. Uh, if you're tuning into this panel and you own, work for, or represent a brewery, I would highly encourage you to check out our free platform, marketmybrewery.com, which empowers you to control the information that is broadcast online about your brewery and your brands in the largest curated database in the world of breweries and beer, BreweryDB. BreweryDB.com is the go-to space for thousands of users daily who are crafting their next brewery adventure and learn more and looking to learn more about your brands. Claim your brand page for free today at marketmybrewery.com or by clicking Is This Your Brewery on the brands page on brewerydb.com. Let's dive in. So, hey, everybody, super excited that y'all are all able to join. Um, I know we uh, are going to stick to the timeline with a, an hour, so I want to just dive in with introduction. So, um, Chris, I think we'll start with you, but if, if you just share a little bit about yourself, who you are, and then a little bit of demographic information about your brewery, where you're located, rough size, and your distribution footprint. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Josh and, and uh, CBP for having me uh, join. This is exciting. Uh, I'm Chris Shields. I'm the director of education for Rheingeist Brewery in Cincinnati, Ohio. So right here in the Midwest, um, we are uh, just over 100,000 barrels uh, a year and we're in uh, about 10 states, uh, not not full uh, coverage on all those markets, but, um, decent presence in, in 10 States. And then, uh, we have been around, we actually just celebrated our 10th anniversary this summer. So, um, in that weird, I, I feel like we're still brand new, but we're older than, uh, a lot of the, the breweries out there. So, uh, excited to honestly hear what everyone else has to say about this topic. So, Looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks for being here, Chris. Uh, Paige, would you would you mind sharing with us? Sure. Yeah, I'm uh, Paige Martin. I'm the quality and education manager at Second Pitch Beer Company in San Antonio, Texas. Um, our brewery is turning three at the end of August, um, and we are uh, distributed just within the San Antonio area. Um, so we just have one distribution partner for now. Uh, we were self-distributing for the first year and a half. Um, so yeah, we've been growing and chugging along and I've been with the company the whole time. So yeah, I'm excited to share what we got. Nice. Thanks again for being here. And then uh, last but not least, Mr. Fowler. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having us today. Uh, my name is Eric Fowler. I'm the head of education and craft hospitality at White Labs. Um, you know, our perspective is a little bit different because we are a very technical 
ingredient supplier in the form of yeast, but we do have two commercial breweries and tap rooms as well. So the information that we collect and digest isn't just for the general beer geek, but it might be the professional brewer, the home brewer, the hobbyist. So with those different sets of audiences, it can make it a little complicated sometimes to um, digest and, and articulate that information to where it's accessible and useful. Um, our brewery for perspective is about a thousand barrels a year. Uh, we've got a 20 barrel brew, brew house in San Diego, California, and about a 30 barrel brew house in Asheville, North Carolina as well. Tap rooms accompanying both those with our yeast facilities. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we were putting this panel together, you know, standardizing beer information can kind of seem that we're trying to kind of copy and paste across the board. And I don't think that's necessarily what our goal is. Our goal is to kind of allow y'all to showcase what you're doing. You know, we have a wide variety of large distribution with 10 states all the way down to just the local area, multiple locations. So hopefully everyone who's tuning in is able to find, you know, some some similarities to their business and their brands and kind of what they're doing so that we can all ultimately, you know, raise the bar and be able to better showcase our information, which we know today is, is very important. Um, so talking about sharing information, you know, how do each of you currently handle communicating information about your current and upcoming brands with, with your internal staff? Anybody want to dive on that one? Sure. I'll jump, I'll jump in. Uh, that, uh, that works uh, pretty well. That's really where my role started um, was as Rheingeist was growing, having an understanding that we needed to share the information with our team. So my role in education, uh, I came from the production, from the brewing side. The, the initial education impetus was our staff bartenders, sales reps, accountants, everybody, right? Like, what are we doing? What are these beers about? What's going on? Um, so we do, we do some basic training with folks uh, on just sort of broad beer knowledge. But as far as brands, we have a, a couple different things. One is uh, everybody that works for the company gets an email from me about every beer that comes out. There's definitely kind of a template so that it's not, you know, created from scratch each time. Thank goodness. Um, and, I, and I work with a lot of other folks to put that information together. Our, our sensory specialist, Travis, is the one writing the tasting notes. I'm just grabbing them and presenting them to everyone. Uh, it includes ingredients, some of the sort of story around the beer, the style, um, package formats, kind of a lot of different things like that. And then beyond that, uh, a little bit more dedicated for the sales team and the marketing team. We have a uh, online resource. It's a Google spreadsheet uh, that is basically just beer info. A lot of the same information that's in the emails, but a live document that people can pull up and look at with um, every beer. Nice. Paige, I know you're doing some cool stuff down at second pitch. Is, is there some similar things that you're doing to Chris? Anything different? Yeah, it sounds pretty similar. Um, for us, we're, um, I don't know, obviously much smaller. So we've got eight employees all day. So communication internally, I think is a little bit easier, probably. Um, even though like, between our production staff, you know, working during the day, our taproom staff working at night, we have a social media person that mainly works from home. So yeah, trying to, to get everybody in the same room can be really difficult. Um, so yeah, we, um, have 
kind of similarly uh, tasting note template. Um, so whenever we come up with a new beer, if it's totally brand new, um, yeah, we'll send out a staff wide email. Um, we'll make sure to do a like tasting training on it whenever everybody comes in, you know, for their shift once it's released. Um, and then just trying to make sure that everybody is using the same language across the board in some way, shape or form. Um, so thinking about where that flavor message is going. So like from our back of house production can tend to use like technical terms for stuff. So like, for instance, one of our flagship beers is a California common. Um, so that one is a little bit of a unique style. So for our brewers, it's nothing for them to say, oh, this beer's uh, a lager, but it's fermented at 63 degrees. And that has a meaning to them, but it doesn't necessarily have a meaning to like front of house staff or like the general public. So trying to, to make those two languages kind of meet in the middle um, and making sure that we're using the same vocabulary throughout. So um, from the initial like description email, um, our tap room manager, for instance, knows what to take like the meat of that and use it for menu writing. And then our social media person will also take that and use it for like the social media workup. Um, so taking the very like keywords that guide our styles all the way through from recipe development down into release uh, and using them for those different audiences. Yeah, and talking about different audiences, Eric, I know you touched on on your introduction, but your team is, is dealing with a wide variety of audiences from consumers who may be just getting into craft beer all the way to professional brewers who are maybe trying to kind of get some sensory notes from some of your strains. So how do you handle staff training similarly or different? Yeah, so we've struggled. Um, it's very difficult when somebody walks into our tap rooms. They're, they're set up very different in the sense that we're more of an R&D brewery. We split batch everything we do, the fermenters and the image you see behind me, uh, our five barrel fermenters. But what we'll do is we'll take 10 barrels of wort, split stream it into two uh, fermenters, and then inoculate with two different yeast strains. So what that does is gives us the same beer with two different yeast strains. And I would argue that it's now two separate beers. But when you look up on our menu, it'll still say hazy IPA with two different strains or variants listed below it. So... Um, it's difficult and what we still struggle with, but what we spend more time on is trying to learn more about the guest before ex before over-explaining. Uh, because you could get a, a home brewer who's been a White Labs fan for 25 years that they come to San Diego. It's the one destination that they really want to sneak away from their family and, and visit. And they might be disappointed if you don't go into all the nitty gritty and show a fermentation timeline and uh, how this yeast strain affected pH differently than this other one. But you might have somebody that's coming in looking for a pizza and a beer. And to be frank, they probably don't give a shit. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's important because for a long time, we only catered to brewers and it showed because it was such a geeky experience. And so many people would leave saying they want to come back and experience it or they already experienced it, so they don't necessarily want to come back. And we've changed that. We flipped the script. We've tried to uh, make it more accessible. So th some of our initial training and collaterals really focused on just what kind of beer it is, why we maybe chose those yeast strains, what glass to serve it in. And then we have a lot of uh, supporting collateral for those who want to learn more. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, the beer that White Lab's putting out is obviously great, but that pizza is incredible as well and all the fun fermentation y'all are doing with food. So that would keep me coming back. But, you know, I think the, the interesting thread between all of this is, you know, there is definitely some similarities on how y'all are sharing your information with your staffs and the training. And I think that's the key is having something in place, having a template, having somewhere where it, it has some consistency to it so that if somebody is looking for the information, they know where to find it. And I think that's a key element that I would encourage all brewers to be sure that they have some sort of document, whether it's a, a printed book that's underneath the, the cash register, something that's digital, like a shared sheet. Um, because I used to, coming from the brewing side, you know, I used to tell our team, you know, I'm never going to fault you for not knowing the information, but I will fault you for not knowing where to find it. And, you know, we try, we try really hard to make sure that it's, it's easily accessible. And it sounds like y'all are all doing a great job to do that with your staff. And, you know, I think it's interesting because a lot of these kind of focus on the tap room a little bit, but, you know, what would you say are the key points to share with your tap room staff or your, your consumer facing staff? And then how does that differ from your sales staff, which is also still internal, but, but maybe having different conversations? Chris, Chris you know that one yeah. hour, Eric? <laughs> All right. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, uh, I, one of the points that I wanted to point out is uh, I even struggle with uh, within the sales staff because we have a very different, uh, you know, what, what the sales rep that works a block away from the brewery needs is different than what the sales rep who works in Michigan or um, Tennessee needs. And that's even different than what our wholesaler reps need. So figuring out the, those layers, you know, and, uh, you know, Paige, you kind of talked about that, like almost like a filter, right? Of like how, how technical are you going to get? how many, I think of it as like nuggets of information, right? Like a long tenured sales rep who's been selling Rheingeist in Cincinnati for a long time is going to have more capacity to know more about each individual beer. I think having an understanding of that is, is smart. I don't expect all of our wholesaler reps to know every hop in all our beers. I don't know every hop in all our beers, we make 150 beers a year, but Josh, to your point, I know how to look it up really fast <laughs> yeah. and, and that's really helpful. But even that like beer information section, like we don't even offer that to our wholesalers. You just get to me, citrus, Simcoe, Mosaic. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you probably well, yeah, at least have one. Yeah. You know, and, and to me, like the wholesaler, there might be a few people who would use it, but I'd rather just not overwhelm them with knowledge and just provide them, you know, we make a sell sheet that has ABV. It's got a couple sentences, maybe it, they don't even have tasting notes on them for the most part. It's just kind of what this beer is supposed to be. Now I'd love to have tasting notes on all of them, but uh, you know, they need those in hand before the beer exists sometimes. So um, kind of looking at that, we call it our, the story for the beer, the sales story. And that's, that's, I think that's about it, what we give to the wholesaler reps. Um, and then with the tap room, uh, a lot of what we encourage them to do is here's the information, here's where to find the detail, try it. Um, it is so much better if our tap room team can say, you know, oh, you know, may maybe I'm not a big Hefeweizen person, but here's the notes out of this, um, whatever. Um, I'm projecting because I'm not a half of ice in person, but there's, there's, there's just that, that balance of, we also have 
taproom bartenders that are basically full-time and we have some that work one shift a month. I'm not going to get the same level of engagement out of them and that's okay. But I do need them to have sort of one, a minimum level of engagement and interaction. And the, the thing that I think is probably the most important is that that gauge of what the customer is looking for. I, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about beer. If I go into a brewery or a, a bar or a tap room and I ask a question of the server and their response is, hey, I'm sorry, I don't know. Uh, give me a second, I'll find out. I've never been disappointed by that answer. That's a great answer. Yeah. They have to be able to get some amount of answer, but I don't worry about them memorizing everything. Yeah. I think those are some great points. Uh, Paige with your, with your team, do you have a dedicated sales staff or how do you, how do y'all handle sales and how does that differ between the information being given to the, your, your uh, tap room staff versus that team? Yeah, so we have uh, one dedicated salesperson, um, and then uh, we have wholesale partners as well. Um, so they have, you know, their own sales staff. Um, so as far as the training differences between our tap room and our sales staff, they're very similar. They get the exact same training. The only difference I would say is that for our beers that we are going to release into larger distribution, they also have a sales sheet. Um, so yeah, just like Chris was saying. Um, that sales sheet is going to be more about the brand story than it is about the tasting notes. Um, so yeah, basically ours will have like the information that's on the back of the can, um, maybe like a couple of additional words, like keywords to it. Um, and then the, like the pricing information. So our salesperson will have the same flavor training that we all go through as far as learning the different modalities of the beer really basically like the you know appearance aroma flavor mouthfeel um so that's a little bit more in depth than any of our wholesale partners are are going to get usually um but it's important for us for them to get both because with us just being localized a lot of our like retail partners will come into the tap room and they'll have a great experience and say oh my gosh i love this beer when can i get a keg and we're like actually we only distribute you know this is seasonal or whatever um so yeah having that kind of go-to information of saying well you can't get that but we do have this you know so being able to relate that similarly and have a close relationship with all of our beers not just our beers that we are doing for distribution um so yeah a little bit of a difference there but overall the same thing for both and then our wholesale partners uh, we're lucky with them too. We've only got one wholesaler. So um, we do trainings with them as well. So they come in house at least once a year. And then we try to go out there another time during the year uh, to host a meeting where we do a tasting flight with them as well. Um, so I think we distribute eight beers total. So we've got four cores year round, and then we try to do a seasonal quarterly. Um, so we'll do the full panel of four core beers and then whatever seasonals on at the moment. Um, so, I mean, they've got like over a hundred sales reps, so it's hard to catch them all. But between those two meetings, we want them to try our beer at least once and know that they have tried it with us, with our tasting notes. Um, so yeah, that's always fun and a big deal. Cause it's definitely the biggest meetings that we ever go to. 
Sure. When I think it's unique, you know, all three of you and me in my previous role, you know, not all breweries have a point person whose sole or whose key dedication is education. Paige, I know you do a little bit more beyond that with your involvement in quality, but you know, a lot of folks rely kind of on their brewers. So do you all ever bring in a brewer to talk about consumer or to talk with consumer facing staff from a training standpoint, or do you find that it's better to kind of leave the brewers on the production side and have a kind of an intermediary? Yes. Um, yeah. It, it really depends on the brewer, right? I think there are very few brewers in the grand scheme of production staff that are great in front of people. Uh, you know, there's there tends to be a reason, just like back of house kitchen staff, why people get drawn to those positions, right? And I've I've engaged with a lot of different brewers uh, who are very well spoken, and then you throw them in front of thirty people and freeze up, right? And that's no fault of anybody. It's it's scary. It's hard to, to public speak for a lot of people. Uh, when we hired our last brewer here, um, our brewing operations manager, uh, those were some of the questions that I asked. And I said, you know, it's it's not going to make or break your potential in this position, but just up front, like, is that something that you'd be willing to do? Uh, and uh, Craig Tump, who, who's our brewing operations manager now, has really grown into that very quickly. And he's done great in and for White Labs, it's a little bit different because it's more so professional workshops, not so much just public-facing beer classes. Uh, but it is giving you know three, four-hour lectures on on our beer and how it was made and why we chose this yeast strain and this fermentation temperature and what type of nutrients this strain required. Uh, but I, long answer short, I think it just depends. You know, it's not something to write off, but. You know, I've, I've done, I've been in this industry for quite a while and I've done all types of different engagement with different breweries and sometimes it's great. And sometimes it's, you know, you know, it doesn't mean they're not more knowledgeable than the person maybe presenting the beer dinner, but maybe they're not as well-spoken just because of the nature of their position. Sure. Yeah. Anybody else want to chime in on kind of having the, the brewers in the, in the forefront? I'm always for it if it makes sense. Like it, if it makes sense for everybody's time, that's always something that I want to consider. Um, like our brewers most of the time will come in very early in the morning, you know, 5, 6 a.m. So if we've got a beer dinner at 8 p.m. and they've been brewing all day, I don't know. <laughs> you know, does that make sense for them? Uh, and so it it has to make sense, I think, for everybody involved and for, for what you're doing. Um, so yeah, luckily for us, our brewers have always been really like – outspoken and passionate and willing to to get up in front of people and kind of and talk about what we do and what they do uh and i think that that's a really special moment um so same thing for the audience you don't want to like put them and their very passionate like technical knowledge up in front of an audience who won't get it or won't care um so yeah it just if it makes sense for everybody involved then absolutely yeah. And I think when it comes to best practices, you know, that's kind of why I wanted to talk about that. Cause I, I do find a lot of times like the brewer kind of gets shoved, you know, from behind the curtain and onto the stage and they're not ready for it or they don't want to do it. And then ultimately the, the, the message doesn't get translated very well. And that just leads to a breakdown in that communication. So, you know, for those of you who are listening and you're relying on your brewer, you know, be sure that you're having those conversations and, you know, do they feel comfortable? Is there somebody else who could potentially help serve as that intermediary 
um, as either a, a part of their, their current role or, you know, it, does it make sense to make a, a full-time role for them in that regard? Because uh, I, I do think there is some best practices on having somebody who can make sure they can navigate that. But I think kind of shifting a little bit from audience, from the internal staff, you know, there's a lot of, of craziness going on in the market right now with distribution and, and working with wholesalers. So, you know, I wanted to kind of ask, like, what is the biggest pain point for each of you when it comes to communicating your brand information or your products with, with your wholesaler partners and your retailer partners, really th those folks outside of the brewery? I know it's kind of a tough one. I think, I think to some extent it, 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 it's flexible. It moves around. It's kind of what is the current headache, but um, really I think at least for me, a lot of things that I'm thinking about is uh, the two things that popped into my head, at least one is just um, anytime a recurring beer has a change, that's sort of uh, kind of, uh, and whether that's just like an annual, like once a year seasonal type brand, then that might be just a, could be as simple as a ABV change or something like that, or it could be an ingredient swap. And we try to be very upfront about things like that, but I think often that may uh, kind of cause more trouble than it was worth trying to, you know, update sales materials and things like that to change, you know, one uh, ingredient or something like that when it's not, you know, substantially changing the, the beer. So that's something I try to think about. Um, and then the other is just, is really trying to balance that, that difference between wanting to really focus and, and give appropriate weight to our beers that are either year round or flagships, as opposed to what the new shiny thing is. Um, it's really easy to just keep, and then this week this comes out and then this comes out and, and not think about for us, truth is kind of the, the, you know, it's, it's our flagship. It's, it's a huge portion of our business. I'll tell you right now, it's not getting a proportional amount of our education and marketing effort. I'm not sure it should get a proportionate amount, but it should probably get more than it gets. And, and finding that balance, especially with wholesalers and retailers is really hard because they're often going to say, well, yeah, we know. Um, but you still want to, you know, have that beer that, or, or those couple beers continue to be driving your business because they're, they're in that position for a reason. And yes, the environment of the industry changes. That may just mean that which couple beers are your, your core may change, but don't forget to give that focus to those beers. And that's me yeah, telling Eric, myself that. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, I know you're in a little bit of a unique situation when it comes to distribution, because really you're kind of distributing to your two breweries. Do y'all do distribution outside of the two tap rooms? Um, not with beer, but you know, we are a large, largely distributing company on the sure. ingredient size side. Right. And we, we work with <clears throat> wholesalers all over the world to distribute our products. And um, when it comes to distributor training, you know, it can be very difficult. Um, each distributor has a different set of needs or a different amount of time and effort that they're willing to put into certain products or certain companies that they work with. So I think it's um, worth looking at it through their perspective, right? How How is your time with them and anything you're trying to educate them on going to help them make more money? Because that's what they're looking at. 
they're not looking at your margins. They're looking at how they can sell product and hopefully it happens to be yours and you can form a good partnership around that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think Paige, you mentioned it earlier too, about kind of like utilizing filters on what you should kind of communicate and with who. And, and yeah, I think it's, it's, it's very important when it comes to standardizing your beer information to be very pointed and give these folks the information that they need. You know, you can go ahead and you can romanticize all these things, but they're not going to always remember these little nuanced details or the stories or some of that. You really got to give them the key points because you are one brand in their overall books and you want them to have that share of mind. Uh, but you also don't want to be the person who just tries to overwhelm them and they tune out and they miss those key details. So being strategic with what you share and how you share it and the resources you create is extremely important to make sure that they have the tools that they need to essentially do their job. Yeah, I, I repeat this probably more often than I should, but also not enough, is I, I tend to ask ourselves in meetings a lot, who gives a shit, right? Do you care? Do you care that you switch to this new trendy hop that's HBC something that may or may not be released? Or does your customer care? You know, hopefully it's both, but you need to ask yourself that, that question because we get excited about things a lot, right? We put a lot of time and effort into making the best product we can. And sometimes, you know, our guests or our customers don't care. What, what their need is is different than what we think it is. So just asking yourself, what what are they really looking for and ensuring that you're giving that and, and not too much? Yeah, and I think, you know, in the vein of, of sharing best practices, you know, I wanted to give an opportunity. Does anybody have any um, any strategies or specific things that they've done that they have felt just helped a, a brand launch be that much more successful, whether it was uh, a key element that you added on the sales sheet or the live tasting, bringing somebody special in, you know, what have you found has led to the most success when launching a new product with your partners, both internally and externally? Do it as early as possible. <laughs> The yeah. more advanced you can have everything ready and streamlined, like, I mean, that's always the challenge, right, is creating all these materials and getting everything set up far enough in advance where you can just before it comes down the pipeline, like, A, everyone knows it's coming down the pipeline, B, they're expecting what it's going to be, um, they know what price point it's at and what package format it's in, um, and yeah, if you could just have all of that stuff ready just the more in advance you could possibly have it, the better. <laughs> but you don't want it so far in advance that they forget about what's currently out there. So it is a balance. <laughs> yeah. That's probably yeah, the best earlier the better. Yeah, that's the best takeaway from all of us. With, yeah, with best, like how, how far in advance do you all like actually start creating this collateral or communicating some of this like how, how far out do you know a beer's scheduled for to even start thinking about it we're, we're always about two and a half months out on our end yeah no that's a great question eric chris uh page you know how 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 frequently do you have a, that big of a lead time or do you always kind of feel like you, you you need more for us for our distribution beers we've only got a quarterly seasonal. So we've planned that the full like year is already done by like November for the next year. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just for the distribution for tap room. It's a totally different story. <laughs> yeah, it definitely varies based on the, what, what type of beer it is, whether it's something that's coming out of our like eight barrel pilot 
innovation brew house that there are some things are planned really like specifically for that brewery and some other things are Peter wanted to try something out and brewed it. And I, then I find out when it's packaged or something, um, which is all like, that's fine. Like, that's great. It's also small volume. So it's, it's not a huge, like, uh, you know, it's not going into the, the chain stores. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're trying to get as, as ahead of things as we can, uh, dates move around probably not a surprise to anyone uh we try to be as close to the, the predicted dates but also just with you know uh if if one one beer does better than we expect or not quite as good as we expect then we have to have that conversation of okay if it's are we are we going to cut it off early are we going to brew another batch what does that make uh was that due to our timeline um, you know, we have the advantage and disadvantage, I guess, of, you know, our, our production batches are 240 barrels. So it gets really confusing if we sales comes to me and says, Hey, we could really use 40 more barrels of this brand. Like, okay, well, do you want 240 or do you want yeah. nine? And, and that's, that's like, I mean, that's kind of a shitty response sometimes, but, um, you're always kind of having to think in that, in that type of math. And that's something that I, I was going to say we struggled with. We still struggle with, but there's been some times where we, you know, we made the wrong choice with, with yes or no to another production batch or another batch of cans or things like that. And those are expensive mistakes sometimes. Um, but, but trying to get ahead of that, trying to, um, you know, know what that expectation is and building a sales plan as best as you can is a huge advantage, even for the production team. Um, I think a lot of times production plan and sales plan are thought of not completely separately, but they are really much more connected than I think some of the people working on those plans uh, think about uh, because they're it all comes back together and all comes back around to that, to that beer. And I think the, the other point I was going to make about um, kind of building that uh, new brand is, is really in, in relation to what Paige said as well, but it, it's getting people excited about it. And that starts in your building and the more you can get other folks excited about it. And you have to find, I mean, this, Eric, this goes back to, to your point of like, who, who cares? Why, why do why should, why should your wholesaler care about this beer? And it's a hazy IPA or it's a lager. That's not an answer. Um, it doesn't, ha it can be a weird answer. You didn't it's listen to Paige at all. That... She said it's in between <laughs> an IPA and a lager. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's got to, it, it has to have that, uh, it has to have that story and it has to be something that they can then turn around and get their customers excited about it. Yeah. I think that kind of leads me to kind of the next aspect is, you know, we've talked a lot about, making sure that our team knows the story, making sure that our wholesalers and retailers know the story as relevant to them. But ultimately, our goal is to make sure that that story, um, by way of telephone and oftentimes, is making it to the consumer. Um, so when it comes to sharing information with consumers, you know, have you found that there's specific things that are just especially important that you're like, if, if the consumer only gets these things, you know, we'll be successful? Or in, in, on the flip side, have you found things that, you know, often through the game of telephone, things don't really get translated very well. And you've decided to kind of pull those back from some of your, 
your backup materials and supporting materials so that they're not getting mistranslated, uh, which I think happens frequently. So I guess to kind of sum that up, you know, what are the, the, what is the key information that you think consumers need to have? And then what are some of the things that maybe you've tried in the past and have, have kind of decided to, to no longer do or to, to change up a little bit? Yep. So with our brands, we try to start with uh, keywords uh, from all the way back to recipe development. So whatever we're like thinking of a style, um, we try to start with, okay, it's going to be amber, it's going to be caramel and woodsy, and it's going to be crisp. That's it. That's, that's four or five words max. That is our like guiding light. And it could be in combination with a style, it could be, it'll have, you know, a definitive ABV at the end of it, um, which will all be part of that key information. But if we're getting these five keywords, we want that all the way through. So going in through production and then sensory checks and sensory panels and everything, if we're getting those keywords continually, we did our job right as far as the recipe goes. And then taking those keywords through into the brand story and then into the beer descriptions themselves and how that's communicated through all the channels, through the sales sheet, through the menu, through the social media post, through all of it. If we're getting those keywords and then also if we're hearing those keywords back in responses, like in the tap room or from the customers themselves, that's success for us. Yeah. I have a question so. for Paige. <laughs> Do you uh, do you present those words to like the customer in any way in your tap room or is it more of an organic like are they like on the menu or on the menu board or something like that or are they is it more just you, you're you're more esoterically getting them out there and trying to hear them back. Yeah, so we put them in the description on the menu. So like we have um, like the way our tap room set up. We have clipboards on the wall that will give the style the name of the beer and the ABV, but then the written menu has like a one sentence beer description. And that'll always include those like solid keywords. Uh, the only time that we don't put those words in front of somebody is if we're doing a blind tasting for sensory and then we're looking to hear them back. But yeah, they're, it's, it's blind, so. That was gonna be my, my question for you, Paige, too, was, uh, if you're taking like a brand description on the sensory side and use, I guess for the group, has anybody taken the brand description from the sensory side and use that for customer facing descriptors? Yeah, I know in the past, that's something that, that I did, you know, kind of looking at that echo chamber a little bit saying, you know, here's what we're sending out. Here's what we believe it should be. Here's are we getting this back? And then we've also shifted, you know, it's like, Hey, we're starting to hear this in response. We're starting to see this. And it's like, okay, maybe that's not necessarily the way that we're going to talk about it internally, but maybe we do need to shift how we talk about it externally. So that way we're better connecting with the, the target audience, which in that case would be the consumer. So um, I think sometimes there can be that fine line between, you know, and Paige, I think you hit this too when it comes to like lexicon, you know, using more technical terms on the back end. Sometimes those translate to the consumer, uh, but sometimes they don't and, and things can get lost in translation. Uh, Chris, I don't know if you have anything to add on that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, we, I would say that they're related, but the, like our internal sensory write-ups are honestly generally a little bit more um, loose than what we might present um, 
to the public, which maybe sounds backwards, but it's, it's because we have, uh, you know, we have a, a, a broad swath of tasters and we're generally looking to make sure that a brand fits within its, you know, its framework. And I'm not too concerned if somebody is, you know, somebody thinks it's, um, you know, one taster says tangerine and one says, you know, caracara orange. But so the internal description might be, you know, sweet citrus, whereas externally, whatever our sensory specialists are, uh, or in concert with some of our, um, you know, brand building folks, they might decide the tangerine sounds good. And it's not that it doesn't taste like or smell like tangerine. It's just trying to give some leeway. Like, I don't want somebody being like, I don't get tangerine. So I'm going to put a, you know, slow down on this beer. So it, it's a little bit counterintuitive maybe, but it's, uh, it's, it's kind of backwards that sometimes the language gets a little bit more descriptive when it's being presented externally. But I do agree that it gets less technical. So on the, the other side is like, I'm not going to, you know, not going to put any kind of scientific chemical, you know, uh, names or, or aromas out there. Sure. Yeah. And I think when it comes to getting lost in translation, I wanted to kind of ask if anybody has a story or maybe a time that they can recall where, you know, they, they put their messaging out into the world and then what was coming back was something completely different, you know, whether it was the beer style got turned upside down or the origins of it or, or whatever it was about. Does anybody have a time where, you know, things just kind of went off the rails and you're like, where did they get this story from? And it seems to spread like wildfire. You mean anybody who's ever made a cream ale? <laughs> yeah, well, there, that's a that's definitely a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, because again, I, I think it's it's challenging. You know, like for, internally, you you get so intimate with the brand that you're building, or even the brands that you have. You know, you feel like you know the whole story. You're out there telling the story. You're telling the story to others so that they can tell the story. Um, and then, like I said, sometimes that game of telephone just kind of goes off the rails and it's, oh, you know, they're, they're putting this in that spirit. It's like that, there's nothing like that. I have no idea where that came from. And I think a lot of that really comes from, you know, the challenges with consistency across the, the web is really, you know, something that is completely untrue can spread like fact in a, in a hurry. And so um, trying to manage that can be challenging. So I just wanted to see if any, I'm sure somebody listening has had a story like that. So if anybody had anything they can relate, great. If not, we can definitely, uh, we can continue on. We made an oyster stout one time. <laughs> So that was an adventure. Uh, it was a great beer. I loved it. Um, but yeah, we did distribute it. We were still self-distributing at the time. So it was kind of a, if we made a keg, you can get a keg kind of Wild West like time period of our lives. Um, so we were very like vocal, like loud, like it has oysters in it. We used oyster shells in this beer. If you are allergic to shellfish, please don't die. Um, <laughs> You know, so that was our main messaging was like, please don't die. Um, but then trying to explain to people, like, even though, yes, it absolutely uses oyster shells. Um, it also doesn't taste like seafood. It tastes like a maybe kind of a salty version of an American stout. Like it's bitter and chocolate and salt, um, not like eating seafood. So it was a it was a really difficult balance all around the board. And we had some retailers who were really stoked on it and were so happy to have it. And we had others who were, you know, utterly, utterly confused. So it was an interesting time. 
Yeah, it sounds fun though. Yeah, I think of I think of we less so now, but still some. Uh, with with so many you know like juicy IPAs, we get a lot of questions about you know well how, what you know does this have? It's always grapefruit juice because of uh, medication interactions, but um, you know that's that goes back to that like like a lot of these a lot of beers now like you know there's this tend towards a, a huge amount of fruitiness. There's also a trend towards using a lot of fruit and kind of parsing which beers have fruit, which don't, but are still fruity can, can be really tough. Um, that's something that, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of like, I'm trying to make sure that if we use lactose in something, it's on the keg collar. It, it is part of the name of the style. We don't have to do that, but that's, that, that's that being open like that. And it's, um, it, it's really tough sometimes to, you know, Paige, as you said, like, be honest about what's in this and what's not, but also not confusing. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time talking with some of our team about like, you know, they'll ask things like, what style is it? I'm like, well, the, before something exists, like, well, what do you want to call it? <laughs> yeah. Because there's not like styles aren't that set. TTV made sure we defined it as an ale. Well, and how many barley wines are sitting on the shelf as double IPAs? Because we all know a double IPA will sell twice as fast as a barley wine. So Yeah. So the, the first brewery I worked for was a nano brewery. I was the only paid employee, so did pretty much everything. And we we only made his not only, but for the most part, we made historic inspired beers. So let's just say they're out of business. <laughs> a nano brewery doing all historic beers, which all of us on this call probably would think it's great. And the yeah. beers were super interesting and really good. But when it came to education and selecting, we, we did distribute to some some few accounts. And it was very difficult because our brown porter, for instance, used a high percentage of brown malt to try to emulate you know, the historic beers made with brown malt. And uh, was were, it was also finished with Brett. And so it wasn't a Brett beer as we know it in the sense of, you know, being very phenolic and having these earthy barnyard characteristics, but it just had this very dry accentuated ash character of, of the malt. And it, it was difficult, you know, it took a couple minutes to describe it. And I think that's something that I learned more, most is like, that was my fault. Like I should never be promoting a product that it takes me a couple minutes to, describe and it was a great beer and once you were able to describe it people loved it and they understood it and they thought it was really cool that we were you know recreating something so historic but um one of the local uh, beer writers here in san diego it was a, a big um international beer festival that we were at and we had the top we were in the top three worst beers that he tried at the beer festival oh you know? no and I think a lot of it was just because it was a misunderstanding. It, was a, it wasn't a beer that translated well for a beer festival. Uh, you know, it was volunteer pours. It probably said brown porter on it and tasted like it was contaminated with bread. And I don't blame them. But um, some of those more unique beers can be a little more difficult. Uh, and I, I, Chris, I really like the mention of fruit because I had uh, New Belgium's Juicy something, Juice Haze or whatever, one of the Ranger beers. I, th I think it was that one, so I probably shouldn't misquote myself, but um, I bought a can and I was like, there's fruit in this. Like, this is crazy. 
And then I look and it says ale brewed with natural flavors, but never specified what. And I was so disappointed because that's not what I wanted. You know, I wanted a 19 ounce can for a buck 99 for 7-Eleven, but I didn't necessarily want it to be a juice fruity beer. Yeah, I think from the standpoint of best practices, you know, like you can have the best intentions and, and create arguably one of the best beers. But if you're not able to, to successfully share that information, it gets lost in translation. And then you set improper expectations and then you end up on on the wrong list that you don't want to be on as the, the top three worst instead of the top three best. Um, I did want to mention, too, I, I saw Cody Craft Brewing in the comments kind of talk about incorrect reviews kind of spreading like wildfire. And that's definitely something that I've seen in my experience as well. You know, with the rise of digital menus at bars and restaurants and other on-premise establishments, you know, sometimes they're just pulling these quotes out of seemingly nowhere. It's like I've been in a couple where I'm like, where did you even see that? That's not even anywhere how we would ever talk about that brand. Um, but, you know, there it is stated as fact right there on that menu um, or tasting notes that you're like, who wrote this is not consistent with how we would ever describe this beer. So where did this come from? And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's challenging to kind of own that information and and part of being successful at owning that information is making sure that what you're putting out there is well done and is easily accessible and is available to everybody. So that way you really can control that messaging. And I know, you know, I don't want to plug us too much, but that's something that we've tried to do at, at BrewLogics and with BreweryDB and Market My Brewery is really give the brewers the power to kind of own their information. So that way, um, exactly the words that are coming out of their mouth um, or out of their fingertips digitally are the ones that are being translated to the consumer. So I think that's really cool. And I, I saw Chris is, is logged in as well from Pure Project, you know, and he was talking about the three word descriptors um, on the consumer facing brand sheets for festivals and things like that. Again, I think, you know, that kind of just sets the tone of what to expect. And, and Eric sounds like, you know, something like with that, that porter, you know, being able to kind of talk historic porter and then have those three descriptors to kind of give people what to expect really goes a long way. Um, and I think when it goes to when, it talk, when we talk about translating that information, you know, is there anything um, that y'all have created or that you found that is really successful at um, really putting that information out there, whether it's a template that you've created or some sort of format that you found. You know, um, I know for me, I used to utilize the, the CBFR method, which is color, body, flavor and romance. And it's kind of a, a quick elevator pitch way to uh, to kind of talk about beer. But I wanted to hear, you know, I know we've got some creative folks on the panel. What, what do y'all use that you found is really successful that maybe somebody else could could use or reach out to you to get some more information about? Or on the flip side, is there something that you use now and you're like, man, I wish we could get away from this. Uh, Chris, I know we talked a little bit about, you know, using a, a sheets can be a little challenging and can be a little wordy and things like that. So I think you can go both ways. Do you have any best practices for things that you really enjoy or maybe some things that you would caution people to kind of uh, look elsewhere? I have, I think IBUs are the worst. Um, I am, they're, they're great. If you're writing a recipe, if you're a brewer, Absolutely. Super helpful piece of knowledge for someone. I really wish brewers had never said the word IBU to any drinker in the history of the world. Um, I'm on maybe a one man campaign to uh, stop talking about uh, IBUs on menus. Um, we we rarely report yeah, them, but too. we get asked for them all the time. Everybody wants to put them on their menus. They're the worst. That's really it. I'm not gonna like soapbox on it for too long, but yeah. What is it? Bitterness versus gravity units. It's like a better that, formula. That's better. Perceive. Yeah, it's power. better. But it's still, it's still tough. Well, I'm using word descriptors, you know, versus calculated bitterness. You know, like being able to say perceived bitterness. What, 
a calculation doesn't really do much if I've got 100 IBUs, but then I've got so much residual sugar that it tastes sweet. You know, it's it's kind of challenging that way. Although, you know, I, I did have the 3000 IBU beer from uh, McKellar. So, you know, that was their whole their whole shtick behind that. So maybe they, they want to. Yeah, about that time, too. And Stone obviously really pushed the limits on what those. Are. But you go back and try those beers like they've rebrewed Ruination. It's like, wow, this is really bitter. Like our palates change. It's still great, but um, I, I've seen. I mean, we've got a pretty sophisticated uh, chemistry lab here too, and, and calculated IBUs aren't very accurate compared to measured. So, for what it's worth, yeah. And all those all those methods, or many of the methods, even like for us, like pretty much every hazy beer we run through our lab to get IBUs, it comes back at forty. So, yeah, Kyler uh, SRM gets all screwed up too, but we can. Yeah, I mean, you got to remember these panel. are these are methods that were designed for pale German lager, not hazy boys or sours, kettle sours, right? Ooh, or things with fruit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then you get into titratable acidity. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah. What's exactly. the SRM of your purple glitter beer? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Firestone I, I, Barrel like, Works does a good job. I, I, if, if you know, talking about communicating beers, like their uh, Barrel Works series does a really good job. At, they'll have TA listed and ingredients, but it's all in a very accessible way. I encourage everybody to look up uh, the, those labels online if, if you haven't seen them. Yeah, and talking about sour beers, Chris from Pure Project is still tuned in, and he was kind of asking, you know, it, 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 I think we have a couple sour beers represented on the panel, but um, he was saying, is there any dedicated words to describe the range across the sourness? Um, in the tasting rooms, because, you know, I would argue that sour beer is one of the worst terms that we've come up with in the beer industry, because sour is one of those flavors that we're naturally avert to, you know, so it's like, oh, have this thing, same with bitter, you know, so does anybody have any tips or anything that they do uh, when it comes specifically to sour beer, or maybe even heavily bitter beer, you know, is, is there some key words that you use that kind of make it less scary, less intimidating? I love that question, Chris. Thank you so much. Um, we honestly don't do a lot of sour beers here at Second Pitch. We've only done a couple or we do some with like tartar fruits. Um, and so whenever we're using our descriptions for those, um, we tend instead of to just say it is sour, uh, we'll go like tart or we'll put like fruit tartness or we'll say lactic acidity, you know, something like that to kind of give you an immediate connection instead of just saying like it is sour, it will make your mouth pucker saying it is going to give you like the impression of like a yogurt is going to give you the impression of like a tart strawberry, something like that. So that way you have already a connection that you've made instead of just expecting it to be like unpleasant yeah we we have certain yeast strains that will produce a little bit more acidity and it'll bring the ph closer to like four maybe 3.9 and and it doesn't produce a sour beer by any means but it does again produce more acidity and it's a little more tart and that one's very difficult for us because when you're trying the same beer side by side you'd be like this beer is more tart but the general consumer is going to be thinking it's sour you know, but it's not. But if you're if you're looking at the nuances, you're like, this does produce a little bit more tartness or acidity than this other yeast strain. We're talking about, you know, 0.2 difference in pH. So it, it while it's very impactful, those nuances often get get lost. I mean, we'll do hibiscus beers sometimes. You're like that produces some tartness, like, you know, but it's not sour. 
Yeah, I remember I did a, a workshop with Jeffers from um, Ironstone and Jeffers, Jeffers drops acid. And, you know, there was a lot of things where he was going through TA. And what do you mean by drops something. acid? Well, that was the name of his uh, his, his seminar was Jeffers oh, Drops Acid, oh, and we were doing TA, which I thought was incredible. And hopefully some people in here know Jeffers because he's, he's hilarious. But uh, um, but yeah, and again, like some of these things that, you know, they would classify as a sour beer, but it is, it's lightly tart. Or maybe puckery is a better example for some of those extreme sour. Um, so again, I, I think, you know, being specific with that language and I think kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier too, like kind of putting some sounding board words out there and then seeing what comes back. You know, some consumers may say, hey, this isn't sour at all. And it's like, okay, maybe we need to think about how we frame this beer on our menu, on our educational materials. So that way we're, we're really representing what we're talking about. So um, I know I want to be respectful of everybody's time. We're coming up on the last couple minutes here, but I think just to kind of wrap this panel up, you know, first and foremost, I want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and for all of you for joining. But, um, you know, the, the last question I had is, I just want to see if you had any final words for anybody who's listening. Um, you know, what, what advice would you give them or what, what um, strategic feedback would you give them to, to help ensure that their brand stories are effectively being shared? You know, whether it, it's something that you've learned today or something that you found extremely successful or something that you want to avoid, just what, what is your last kind of parting wisdom for, for everyone who's tuning in? I mean, uh, Chris, I think we'll start with you if that's okay. Right on. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think we covered a lot of things that I think are, are the kind of gold standard for what you want to be striving towards. And I think maybe that's part of it is just that understanding that you're not going to get this right immediately and it's going to, what's, what's right is going to change. Um, so just, you know, you have to listen and pay attention and, and that's going to be the best way for you to understand how to tell that story and, and communicate. Uh, I often explain my job to people as that I'm translating back and forth between sales and marketing and production. And that's, that only works because I keep doing it right. You have to keep that conversation going. And the same is true for your, for your audience, for your drinkers. Yeah, great insights. Eric, we'll go to you next. I would say like documentation is key for accountability, if that's important when it comes to staff training, um, not just verbalizing those tasting notes or beer information, but put it in writing somewhere and ensure people kind of sign off on it. So you, if somebody's not describing something the right way, you can point back. Again, Stone, Stone Brewing Company was really strict about describing everything. Um, you had to say you know, stone runation ale or whatever, you know, the full name was, but you had to stay the, say the full name of everything and have a set of descriptors. But I, at the same time, wouldn't worry about overproducing the format of that information. So um, some, I've got our graphic artist sitting next to me, so I don't want to be too loud, but um, you know, sometimes when you're dealing with waiting back some, like there are, there are, is time sensitivity to things and, if it has to go through too many people to get designed and, and actually documented, it can actually uh, be counterintuitive. So finding a process that's replicable, you know, Chris kind of mentioned at the beginning, like something that you can do over and over again very easily, whether it's just plugging a couple pieces of information in, um, I think is key as opposed to waiting for this really elaborate one sheet. Um, if you go to whitelabsbrewingco.com, you can see our beer data page has uh, beer sheets on all of our beers that that is overcomplicated in the data that it presents and since it shows ph and, and gravity drops as well as recipe um but you know we've really dialed in a process that it's easy to repeat for each beer everybody goes through the motions it comes out on time uh, which is what our, our staff is looking for because when they get it two weeks later or a week later when the beer is already on tap 
it's just people kind of develop their own lexicon and story behind it. Yeah, and I think we'll, we'll wrap this up with you, Paige. Yeah, um, so I would say something that I've learned throughout this process is uh, even though a big part of this we talked about it all day was make templates, you know, make your, your sheets in advance, all that stuff. Uh, it's just as important to go back and reread it and to reread the materials that you've been putting out in the world, however you've been putting them out in the world. So, I mean, if you haven't had one of your core beers in a while, go back and pop up at a can and read the can, uh, read it on the menu, read it on the untapped description and see if your messaging is still the same, even if you've created that messaging you know, six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, however many, uh, and just review it and, and make sure you're all still in line. Yeah, absolutely. And for anybody who has any questions, there's a great wealth of knowledge up here with our panelists today. Uh, definitely check out all of their brewery pages. Um, I think all three of them have amazing websites that have a ton of valuable information. I'll also plug BreweryDB and Market My Brewery. You know, we've tried to do a really good job to kind of give a, a framework that you could utilize either through our platform or to recreate for yourself. So um, again, I want to say thank you to all of our panelists. Thank you for everybody who tuned in and uh, we hope to catch you next time. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Thank you guys. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening and being an important part of our community. Please hit the subscribe button to stay on top of more sessions that can help you grow as a craft beer professional and join us for more conversations in our community on Facebook. We appreciate you. Cheers.